Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the ACES Audio Podcast. I'm your host, Chad T. Grant. And on this podcast, uh, I enjoy talking about uh, experiences in evolutionary psychology, functional medicine, and natural movement to really provide some insights to empower and inspire people to make positive changes in their health and their own life. Um, we like to keep the topics on this podcast pretty wide, um, in addition to health, also talking about things like business, politics, philosophy, uh, which is a perfect introduction to our guest today, uh, Eric Lynn. And Natasha's on the podcast with me today, so she's going to be doing Eric's bio and chatting with us. Hi, I'm Natasha, and I wanted to introduce our uh, podcast guest today. His name is Eric Lynn. He graduated with a computer science degree from Cornell University, super smart cookie. He worked at Microsoft and Google and a brief stint at a software engineering startup. He took a mini retirement for three years from 2011 to 2014 to study mostly health and then uh, returned back to work for Google. And since 2017, he actually um, was able to quit due to some um, smart choices that he's made to study mostly philosophy. He still studies things like finance and um, fitness and software and things like that, but he's really focusing his studying lately on finance. And how we came across Eric and his partner, Lauren, um, happened to be in 2017 at Ancestral Health Symposium in San Francisco. We got along great and realized that we had a lot of things in common. Uh, we kind of think on the same wavelength. And then we met again in 2018 and 2019 at Paleo FX. That's where our paths crossed again because we live in different cities and different states. But um, we've been able to stay in touch and enjoy conversations with, Laura, with Eric and his partner, Lauren. So now we're kind of circling back around to record this podcast with Eric. Cool. So welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for having me, both Chad and Natasha. <laughs> awesome. So <laughs> yeah, obviously uh, current events right now with uh, coronavirus is when we're recording this. Um, all of us kind of in our different states of quarantine, lockdown. Um, it's the hot topic in not only the health space right now, but the world at large. Um, and this, this converse, the idea for this conversation today uh, came from uh, partly from the fact that all of us in our own ways, obviously, we've been being passionate about health. We've all been you know, researching and reading different things, um, really thinking about not just the surface level, like data and, and trends and things like that, but also like the deeper philosophical meanings of, of you know, what does it mean to be healthy? What does it mean to be uh, a good member of a community? Um, what does it mean to acquire and uh, use knowledge in, um, in ways that are productive, basically? So um, do you have something to say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just going to say um, that Eric took the time to write a really well-researched, um, <laughs> very well-worded, long, lengthy document on his thoughts on current events and particularly Kind of the topic is what if we're all wrong about coronavirus? So that's kind of what brought us here today. Yeah. So I guess Eric, maybe let's start out with that. Um, do you want to give us a a synopsis of your 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 thoughts on the current situation? Maybe. Yeah. Sure. So um, my thought is there are like obviously many sides to this. Um, some people think that you know. Uh, we should go crazy and lock everyone down. Some people think we should say, hey, this is not too, you know, nothing big. 
and and everything in between, right? Um, so my thought, basically, my thoughts have been the same since this first came out, um, just because I don't think we've learned much about this virus. Um, my thoughts have been more of a let's what approach uh, can have the fewest assumptions, and then from those fewest assumptions, uh, base a strategy off that. Um, so my approach has always been uh, without also giving government too much power because uh, once they seem to hold the power, they never let it away. Uh, so that's the, kind of like a little, a, a little bit of a slippery slope. So my approach has been um, basically tell people to wear masks um, to, uh, if you can stay at home, stay at home or, or be more physically distant um, until test and trace uh, comes to the point where uh, people can call and get that get themselves tested within like a day instead of having to wait in line or with having like five six different criteria um, and once that's available then we can start like going back to places um, uh, if an outbreak happens to the point that test and trace is not enough um, or a city or state is not beefing up the test and trace then people try to stay physically distant without mandating it for everyone uh, so you know every day I still go to the park uh, I do a sprint park every day um, I'm outside right now um, so not you're not forced to stay home it's not like China where they actually bolted down your doors right um, and then uh, at the top level uh, restricting travel and quarantine from at-risk regions um, because no matter what, uh, no amount of education is going to make a person say, hey, put that plane down. Um, I mean, that's basically it. Nothing too crazy, but mo mostly precautionary. So I don't assume anything about the virus. Um, and I, my main thought is uh, why it's different than things like, you know, the seasonal flu is uh, there's a term called uh, a novel virus, or they call it pandemic virus. Um, basically, th there are viruses where we don't understand it that well. Uh, whereas the seasonal flu is usually, uh, well, we understand it pretty well. However, there are some flus uh, that are pandemic viruses that we actually call novel. Like in 2009, H1N1 was called a novel flu. In those cases, uh, again, apply like kind of precautionary principle where I assume as little as possible. Um, yeah, that's basically my approach. I could go on to uh, other areas of like why I, I'm distrustful of data and things like that as well. Uh, uh, let me know which which area you want to discuss. Cool. Um, yeah, I think it's good to hear like kind of the overview at the start and like, um, I guess I'll try to kind of do the same from our side, um, kind of see where um, our perspective's at because it's interesting, like you were saying, like your perspective on this since, you know, January has been the same and, and I was looking back over some of my notes to prep for this talk today and seeing, you know, some handwritten notes I'd written back at the beginning of this. And it, it my current, my current viewpoint is very similar to my original one as well. Um, yeah, ours hasn't changed either. Yeah, which which basically was my my first instinct about this was just um, from a kind of like a results results oriented space in terms of like when I heard like okay well obviously a, a thing like a virus that attacks the most vulnerable people are the people the most at risk for you know death or um, most serious complications and my first thought on it was you know focusing as opposed to focusing on like avoidance of transmission more how could we focus on the uh, more productive treatments of the people that are at most risk and the people that have it because that was my first thought was like okay so people are getting it and there's no current conventional treatment there's no vaccine there's no drug that's proven to be effective on it 
Um, so it was interesting to, to us, like, especially what we do with our, our coaching business where we're, we're like so deep in proactive care, like things like nutrition and sleep and hormones, digestion, all this kind of stuff. Um, to us, it's always like if somebody's sick, it's like we're trying to reverse the, you know, reverse back to where, where did their body go wrong um, so that they couldn't fight something off in the first place. And it was interesting watching how quickly like the virus came out and it was like the recommendations were kind of immediately to like wash your hands and stay away from people, which was kind of like just like the avoidance thing. Like, and my first question is this was always like, you know, why don't, why don't we focus on some kind of treatment? Cause like in the natural functional medicine world, it's always like, okay, well there's, you know, a variety of different kind of treatments basically that, you know, both evidence-based and anecdotal or just kind of, you know, ancient wisdom type of treatments. Right. Um, and that's, you know, like where all of us are familiar with this, uh, with, you know, the paleo world and functional health world and all that. Um, and my first thought was like, why don't we, you know, try something like that? How about like trying things like, you know, IV nutrients or like vitamin C, like they tried in China, um, to, help with the people that are the most at risk and see if we can avoid death. And then that would kind of go backwards in the chain to like, okay, so if people aren't at risk of dying, then we don't have to do as many lockdowns. We don't have to have global shutdown, um, economic impact, social impact, all these other kind of tangential things that happen in terms of like when people are socially isolated, economically impacted, all these like huge ripple effects, kind of like tidal waves throughout the society. Um, so that was always my thought of like, you know, if there's no treatment with conventional means um what about kind of like you know rapid prototyping and coming up with a functional treatment um and like the short story on like you know our viewpoint on why that probably hasn't happened probably has a lot more to do with you know politics and uh profitability in like the pharmaceutical industries and kind of government figureheads that are just kind of parroting the same things because um you know from our experience being practitioners in the functional space it's been you know, seeing, you know, going to conferences for years and things, seeing how many uh, natural solutions really and how powerful they really are to reverse things that were previously thought uncurable, things like cancer, autoimmune disease, um, you know, severe things that people have had that they can, you know, reverse it. And it's not, obviously, the jury is always still out on which things are absolutely the best. It's not anything like gospel truth or anything, but, you know, I think experientially, like for myself, and for Natasha both we've we've experienced those changes in our own bodies and seen it with our clients so it was like okay like there's something to this and that just always felt more intuitively like the truth you know to us than um kind of the the government media viewpoint of like you know there's the only way out of this is just kind of avoiding it and waiting for a vaccine basically so right right yeah yes yeah. yeah, so i have a few thoughts on that um so first i i definitely agree with you i uh the first thing I did when, well, uh, for my parents and for my siblings was, uh, for my parents, for example, I ordered them a bunch of ancestral supplements, organ pills, because they don't take, they, they, they eat organs now that I've gotten them to, but uh, I, I'm, I think you guys are advocates of that. Let me know if you aren't. Um, we but are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like, yeah, I, I eat a ton, like maybe uh, a large portion of my diet is basically organ meats. So I, I got my parents uh, some organ stuff. Um, immediately, I got them lung uh just because uh you know your maybe cytokine storms if i'm not sure if that's a r real thing or not it's it, again these are all theories but the theory of cytokine storms um i want them to be able to repair their lungs asap um and i gave them 
thymus, uh, which is immune system uh, support. Uh, basically, it's you know the where your immune system is uh, is, but on, from a cow. Um, I believe in a lot of those things just because I don't really I skeptical of uh, of kind of single isolated uh, ingredients. Uh, for example, like there seems to be some evidence that suggests maybe vitamin D may actually be more harmful than even beneficial. I just get my son from, you know, right above me. Um, and, you know, like, for example, CoQ10 that comes from heart, uh, oh, sorry, that helps your heart, but you can eat heart, which has one of the most abundant source of CoQ10. Omega-3 is supposed to help the brain. You can literally eat brain. I eat brain. I got, uh, there's omega-3 there. You know, adrenals, vitamin C, you can just eat adrenals instead of having, you know, vitamin C. Uh, thyroid for iodine, you can eat thyroid. Um, I'm sure you guys know of all of that. So like, I, I'm, I'm more trusting of things that have been, you know, time tested. Um, so, the, you know, I got them organs because they're time tested. Uh, so I'm, I'm very in agreement with you guys on we should, you know, take kind of like that functional medicine. I, I'm not necessarily a functional medicine advocate, but basically take that kind of more uh, time tested approach to, uh, you know, keeping yourself, you know, strong for, for the virus. Um, the other thought I have, though, is um, a lot of these treatments, uh, they're kind of centered on uh, healing what's wrong with the human body from, you know, modernity, right? Like um, cancer, autoimmune disease, all that stuff. Uh, we can use time-tested approaches to bring us back to health, right? Like, same for me and Lauren. Uh, actually, functional medicine failed us with many. Um, I'm not going to name names, but some were Harvard-trained functional medicine people uh, that uh, didn't actually help us, but we were able to uh, get ourselves back using time-tested stuff. Uh, so um, I believe in those to bring us back to nature, to what we are supposed to be. Uh, I don't believe, I don't necessarily think that one should use modern things to solve modern problems. I think one should use ancient things to bring us back to health, unless, you know, one is like so far removed and is about to die the next day. Try anything, who cares? Like you're gonna die the next day, right? But if you're like within two to three standard deviations of normal, even if your blood test says you're, you know, within, out of, within two to three standard deviations, I, I would say, you know, go with time tested stuff. The thing that concerns me um, is, is basically when we talk about the virus, uh, it's also something that evolves like humans, right? And its evolution time is significantly faster. Like if you were to take a look at microbes, in general, the evolution time is much faster. For example, uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, right? We thought we're smarter than bacteria and, you know, we create antibiotics and they do save lives. Uh, you know, like I said, if you're away from two to three standard deviations and you're dying, uh, take that penicillin like uh you don't need to go time tested wisdom we know like in those cases the downside of the antibiotics which they are antibiotics do have downsides is smaller than a downside of just pure death because at that point you're dead right um however bacteria have you know evolved in selection pressure you kill all the bacteria except a few of them survive and then some reason those replicate and nature has basically done a science experiment. Uh, I always tell my friends that nature is the, actually a scientist because what a scientist does is they have an AB, right? They have a control and then they see if something's better. Well, you know, science, uh, Mother Nature does that without any ethics or morals. Like literally through billions of years, millions of years or billions of years, however you want to say, 
uh, with so many humans and so many organisms, we'll take them, take one, take the A and B, whichever can do better, you take that one. Uh, and that's literally running a science experiment. And no human has run a science experiment longer than Mother Nature, right? Well, Mother Nature also runs a science experiment on microbes. And what do microbes do? They also evolve and replicate on, right? Um, so antibiotic resistant bacteria is a thing because you took the bacteria that can survive antibiotics. Uh, a lot of people talk about like people in gulag prisons come out and they're like, oh, people in gulag prisons, they, they're so strong and stuff. No, actually, no, they're just the ones that survived. <laughs> All the other ones that were weak, you know, didn't make it. Um, the thing with viruses is they also evolve. Um, we see mutations of viruses. Um, whether you believe the anecdotes or not, in 1918, it seems from the history that the second wave of the 1918 flu, uh, the virus was more virulent, actually, not towards uh, the elderly, but towards the younger. Not necessarily that the virus attacked the younger people more. It seems like the evidence seems to suggest, and we won't ever know, no matter, even if we went back in time, we still won't know. But the evidence seems to suggest it was like our own immune system attacked the virus so much, it actually attacked ourselves as well, right? This, it's the cytokine storms, as you call it. Um, there's the umbrella. Uh, it fell over. Um, but uh, yeah, like that's why I gave my parents um, both thymus and lung, because uh, the thymus can help boost the immune system to fight the virus, and maybe the lung can help repair it. That's a narrative, by the way, and I can't say that that's effective in any way. I'm just trusting that our body is meant to, like, knows how to fight viruses, right? That's what we have immune system. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're supposed to, you know, always be the victor. Viruses can be the victor as well. Um, so my main thought is, if what is the assumption here? If the assumption is this virus, uh, we are immune to it as long as our body is strong. I think that is an assumption. Uh, whereas, uh, similarly to uh, saying the virus only attacks the elderly or only attacks the weak, like the H1N1 flu uh, apparently attacked more, most of the young uh, as well in 2009. Uh, the, uh, the thought for that was, well, it seems like there was a variant of the H1N1 flu that the el uh, people that were older already experienced, so they had the uh, immune system memory. True or not, I don't know. The point is, it, the evidence seems to suggest that the younger people got hurt more. Now, whether there's always the nuance that we can be like, oh, well, we don't know the statistics, and people start picking at it. That's not the point. The point is, if there is the possibility that the virus can impact the young and healthy more than the old, and no matter how uh, strong your immune system is, it may actually hurt you more then that's, that's a possibility that we cannot exclude because the consequences of something that moves at scale, like you know how technology works, well, so is the virus. The consequence of something moving at scale is, is dangerous, right? So there are two things uh, I have to say on that more, and then you guys can feel free to interrupt me. And, um, but uh, basically, a virus, when it, when it does spread, that's the chance for it to mutate. Because if the virus is just within me, and I, for example, stay home, I either die or the virus is dead after some number of days, 14, 21 days, whatever it is, right? Unless it's endemic. Um, and that's, if we keep that assumption, I think that's a, an assumption that's more time tested, right? 
because we know that if a virus stays within you, most, most common wisdom will tell you that like, it's either dead or you're dead. So it doesn't spread. But if the virus is allowed to spread, every time it spreads, there's another chance for it to mutate. And like I said, there's no, humans should not feel entitled that we are gonna beat the virus. Viruses are on the food chain too, and they're evolving just like antibiotic resistant bacteria. Uh, so, and antibiotic resistant bacteria is one of my strongest fears because I have a pacemaker and I get a surgery every uh, X number of years, so I could succumb to that. So I don't want antibiotic resistant bacteria, uh, but I do know that my body is not strong enough to fight that. Um, so I'm not going to make, I, I'm going to build my assumptions around that I could die from that. Uh, so that's one. So spread you, uh, could mean more mutations. The second thing is I would love a world where everyone can listen to us right away and take thymus, lung, brain, liver, kidney, I eat all the organs, literally every organ. I even create a spreadsheet of like eating them to the proportion of the size of our body and the cow's body, right? So. Um, because uh, I don't trust the uh, serving size that they say, because I don't think you should eat the same amount of brain as you eat like thyroid. Uh, one is like a thousand times smaller. So um, yeah, I, I, I'm into that, but I don't think we can get everyone into that because, and I'll tell you why, people still smoke cigarettes to this day. Uh, people still eat, you know, Monsanto, right? Like it's, you're not gonna change. Uh, we, what we need are policies that will, at, at the immediate need, something people can do right away if you tell them something. And unfortunately, and I'm not sure if with your parents, but even with my parents, I have not gotten them to 100% comply, nor my siblings. So it's a hard task to, and I, 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 it is great work that you guys do to try to get people onto that train, right? Like I think, I definitely think that needs to be done. But in the immediate need, it's, uh, I how fast the virus is moving and the possibility to mutate this that's i think a more dangerous thing to not just the people that are at risk right now but even to us um, for example maybe the virus right now doesn't affect us we'll be fine if it hits us right what i'm worried about is the more and more people it hits the more and more spreads to the point that it will affect us and then that becomes a more scary thought um, Oh, actually, one last point. Uh, in terms of uh, impacting the economy and stuff, it's interesting because a lot of people think that, like, you know, once we open the economy, everything will go back to normal. But it seems like if you look at Sweden, they have one of the highest per capita. I think they're like number six or five in the world of deaths per capita, according to those numbers. And of course, the numbers are going to be nuanced. Everyone's going to argue that. Um, but the point is, that what we do know is that unemployment is about to hit 2008 levels. I think it's like 0.5% away, uh, 8.6 versus like 8.9 or something, something like that. It's very close to 2008 levels. Um, the economy has basically been as destroyed as Denmark, they're like neighbors and Iceland, except they've had way more death per capita. Um, so it's unclear if the economy and people being unemployed is a result of um, staying at home or actually just fear because the virus is still here. 
Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Eric, thanks for sharing all of that. Um, And I think we're definitely in agreement on a lot of things. Um, Chad and I being practitioners, we do make a lot of the same recommendations that you do, maybe not quite to the extent that you do, because like you're saying, compliance is a difficult thing to get from uh, most people. Unfortunately. So yeah, (laughs) we get that. I mean, I feel like, right, you're right, unfortunately. Um, And so I guess I wanted to summarize real quick what I heard you say. What it sounds to me like you're saying is given the fact that um, education for, you know, things like what you were talking about, consuming organ meats and living like a generally healthy lifestyle is kind of lacking to say the least. And um, I feel like accessibility to organ meats and, uh, again, education around that, the health benefits of organ meats, that kind of ancestral wisdom has been kind of beaten out of most humans. And not everyone, I feel like people are so out of touch with their own actual humanity, with their instincts, with nature, that it takes a lot. It's like turning the Titanic around. It would take a lot to bring people back to their kind of more natural way of living, um, like ancestral lifestyle where they're consuming animal, you know, head to tail and eating all the organs and living in peace with nature and things like that. Um, So it sounds to me from what you're saying is that because we've kind of drifted so far away from that, it would take a monumental effort and it would be slow uh, to return people to that, to educate everyone about it. And it's just quicker to tell people to wear masks and socially isolate, sorry, physically distance in order to prevent the spread of this particular virus. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. Effectively. um, I think the spread of the virus is, uh, a a thing that's moving faster then we can communicate to people to change their habits Mm -hmm. um and then the spread of the virus having having downsides that are assumptions that we don't know about so what if we take this on a philosophical tangent and ponder you know how did we get here and you know if, if we don't start this if we don't make this change now towards returning back towards ancestral living when? When is it going to happen? If not now, if this is not the wake-up call, what would be the wake-up call? And I feel like there's a reason this virus is here, that there's a reason it's spreading now. And I feel like humans have reached this, you know, sort of a critical mass kind of a situation where um, we're either going to continue to be even more susceptible to viruses and they are like what you're saying going to mutate faster viruses bacterial these microorganisms that can infect the human body um, we're meant to coexist with you know a lot of these microbes i mean we have an entire microbiome and a virome within us um, but the general like state of human health has been declining to the point that the microbes are winning, uh, so to speak, against us. Um, And I feel like, I've said this from the very beginning too, I feel like this virus is a wake-up call. And if it isn't, then what would be? So I kind of wanted to, wondering if you guys are, uh, you know, on board to take this conversation, this kind of like philosophical tangent. Absolutely, yeah. Any tangent you want to take, I'm I'm okay for now. I'm okay for now. Yeah. Um, Lauren's feeding me some of her delicious dessert. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, any tangent you guys want to take, feel free to bring it on. Uh, Did you want to add something to that, Chad? Oh, yeah, I was just going to, one thing I wanted to to touch on here um, at this point was. I'll um, just keep that in my memory bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the concept of 
basically like what is infection in the first place. And we've been listening to a lot of, um, not just recently, listen, recently as well, <clears throat> listening to some talks and reading a lot of articles on like how, how do our immune system interacts with the outside world in general, basically. And there's kind of these two big um, competing theories of it. One of them is, is what is kind of the conventional theory, which is called germ theory, which is that, you know, our bodies are kind of discrete entities that things on the outside are coming in and we're defending against them. And most things are separate. And this is kind of like what conventional medicine basically uses and has used for like the last, you know, last like hundred years, roughly as it's become more industrialized has, you know, this theory has been gaining more and more traction. It fits very nicely, like dovetails with the business model of like pharmaceuticals and um, single molecule drugs, which are patentable uh, for profit is that there's these, you know, single there's like one problem and one cure kind of uh, model one-to-one -one for everything, which as we've been talking about already, that's, you know, in, in the natural world, that's not how things work. You can't isolate one molecule and it fixes the whole problem. It's way too complex. Um, the competing theory of that um, is called terrain theory or bioterrain theory sometimes, where it's more like the host is kind of like a garden and the health or lack of health or lack of balance and symbiosis in that ecosystem internally is what is causing what we're typically calling as like a composite output as either health or sickness, um, which is a very big spectrum because <laughs> every day I would argue probably a lot of people are actually not actually very healthy and, and even having diseases they might not even understand or know about. And it's really kind of arbitrary work where we draw the lines, the shades of gray between like one disease and the next, which I think is, is super relevant in this particular pandemic because it's like, um, like a great analogy I heard about this uh, recently was something like if there's a, a house that's been getting eaten by termites for 20 years and then a windstorm comes along and knocks the house over, it's like, did the windstorm, was it the, that the cause of the house falling over or was it the termites? And it's like, you know, I think this is like in general, these two competing ideas right now are kind of like, if, you know, is general like dysbiosis of the gut microbiome and the, and the virome, which they're you know now discovering it, it's interesting to watch this progression because, you know, over the last like 10 or 20 years in, you know, all aspects of medicine, there's been these shifts from like, you know, where, like we were saying, Eric, like antibiotics are real big. And then we start seeing issues and it's like, okay, well, maybe the microbiome is important. Maybe bacteria are not all bad. And, you know, most of the, the, the stats and people that we follow, um, like the things that we've heard is like 99% of 98 or 99% of most microbes are either neutral or beneficial. It's only like that 1% that are acting as pathogens most of the time for most of us. And a lot of the things I've been, I've been reading about viruses are fairly similar as in like, um, specifically with coronavirus, like they, they isolate, like it, it's like an RNA sequence, basically like a fragment of DNA to identify this. But there's been, you know, a lot of confusion and conflicting information on terms of not just the accuracy of the testing, but kind of like the validity of that process in the whole, in the start where a lot of, um, at least a lot of people in our, our small circle of people that we follow are are questioning whether, you know, what's being identified is even, you know, what we call viruses, like what are those even, which basically at their core, they're just pieces of genetic material. And a lot of these like bioterrain uh, doctors, they're more looking at it as like, these are kind of like pieces of a debris floating around. They could be, you know, from our own cells, they could be from the outside world, but basically we're like this, you know, a supra organism that's a composite of a whole bunch of different, you know, pieces of genetic material, different microbes, different viruses, basically all the time. And we're like living, literally living, breathing concert, like a symphony with everything around us. And um, personally, like, 
you know, like we were saying, like there's so much like data and different things. And like, I, I don't particularly like getting bogged in the weeds with like comparing studies endlessly and all that either. I like, I read them to inform my stuff. But at the end of the day, when I'm going to make a decision personally for what I'm going to do or, you know, what I'd recommend to close friends and family, I always kind of fall back on my own experience. Like when I've tried these two models, like for the last 20 years, I've, I've tried out, you know, the conventional model, which was like, you know, basically kind of be afraid of these diseases, like try to kill everything off with drugs, um, try to kind of like push everything away and be afraid of things. And then I've tried the other model, which was like, let me start, you know, eating food that falls on the ground. And like not, you know, showering every three times a day, trying to cleanse myself of like the outside world. And what if I continue to like actually take in and just kind of relax with and become more in harmony with, with the world around me. And my, my observation experience is that then I've, I've gotten like directly healthier, the more that I got away from the kind of conventional thinking, which was like, you know, isolate quarantine, not just with the virus, but just literally with everything like, you know, wash your hands every time you go anywhere. And like, it, even like, you know, kind of going to the bathroom or something like it's like, if you can't even like touch your own body, and then you have to like cleanse yourself. It's like, it is a very like philosophical and basically almost like religious um, viewpoint eventually. And, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of comparisons to, you know, kind of every belief system really is kind of like a religion in some ways. But um, the best point I heard recently about conventional medicine is, is the issue with it is not that it's, you know, it's not a bad model for all problems. Like I always, I always give the example, like if I break my leg or I'm in a car crash, I definitely want to go to the hospital because I can't like, you know, put reassemble my bones. If I break them, you know, in the garage or something with like natural means, like I might need some, some care, but that doesn't mean that it's the only route. And I think it's very similar to like religions when like one gets to be dominant. There's things like, you know, wars, like, you know, in the past, like religious wars where one religion tries to literally kill all the other ones. It seems to me like that's kind of what's happening right now with um, conventional medicine and and specifically in this pandemic is that like, you know, the governor in our state in Washington, we're listening to his speech, you know, this last couple of weeks that the the plan to kind of lift the quarantine. He said like directly his quote was like, we, we are going to be like distanced from people until we have a pharmaceutical solution. It wasn't like till we have a solution until we, you know, till the best solution comes up. It was like, this is the one way. And I think, you know, that's basically a, ver- a very dangerous state to be in. Um, and like the, the next kind of uh, stage of that or, or kind of going backwards as well is thinking about like the psychological impacts of these things of like what happens when there's too much um, politics and business mixed up in health which is kind of a very slippery slope with ethics, like in our opinion, where you have like for-profit companies, you know, especially like pharmaceutical companies, which have a huge track record of like, you know, lawsuits and corruption and, you know, misrepresenting data on purpose to, you know, push drugs through. It's, it's not a really good picture in terms of like trusting those same people to be truthful and to not like, you know, manipulate public opinion through, you know, all the marketing dollars, like, and things like that. Um, so personally for me, it's like, I always get to the point where it's like, I just, if my own, if, if I'm feeling a conflict between what I'm seeing and from like the media and big outlets and what I actually experience. And I also know that they have a track record in those industries of being like disingenuous or, or at the end of the day, just doing things that don't work. I think that's honestly my biggest problem with, with all of this current situation is just that if. Um, like I just got done doing a, a design course in user experience design and it's all about like, you know, getting out of yourself and your ego and being like admitting like, Hey, is, is what you're doing working is if you build software, you build any kind of product, 
is it actually solving people's problems? Um, and if it's not, you have to like have the humility to like bite the bullet and be like, uh, well, this sucks. Like it didn't work. <laughs> and like what I'm seeing, like if we just kind of cut through all the noise with this is like conventional medicine doesn't have a solution for this, you know, whether, it, whether it's even, you know, how bad the virus is, who it's affecting all that stuff. They basically just don't have a solution. And to me, like this kind of like monotheistic dominance of pushing out all other solutions through like, you know, deliberate censorship, like things like that with, you know, a lot of, um, these same functional medicine doctors and, and experts that I'm referencing here a little bit. Um, they've had their websites, you know, pushed out of uh, search rankings and they, you know, get censored, their posts get pulled off Facebook and Twitter. And it's like, it's, it seems to me a very dangerous kind of place to be in. And, and we can kind of get into later as we go, let you guys uh, kind of touch on this stuff, but kind of maybe like what the impacts that you guys might think would be having from that. Yeah, yeah. So again, circling back to um, if this isn't the wake up call, what will be? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to try to <laughs> hit all of them. If I forget, <laughs> just, just please let me know. <laughs> um, I'll start with some of the stuff Chad says, and then I'll circle back to what you said, Natasha. Um, so a few things where I'm in uh, total agreement with you. I don't think uh, we should be waiting for a drug or a vaccine to be our uh, savior. Um, now, if a drug or vaccine is available and someone's about to die, maybe. But if there's a vaccine that comes out tomorrow and literally there was only a month or two months of testing and you're going to apply that to the world and say everyone becomes infertile and can't produce babies, that's a bigger risk, right? Uh, you, basically, I think of everything as forget the data, what's the downside? And the longer something has been in existence, the more, the more we understand about the properties of it. The shorter something has been in existence, the less we understand the properties of it. This applies both to drug and treatment vaccines and as well as to novel other things, whether you call it an organism or just an RNA piece, doesn't matter. The point is, if it's something novel we do not understand from any side, we treat it with caution. Generally, I go, we avoid it because that's the, it's new. We, I, we don't know the properties, if it can cause massive harm at scale. So if a drug or vaccine comes out and it's only been two or three months tested, doing that at scale with an unknown downside is like taking something like uh, 7 billion people times a probability that we don't understand, right? Um, same thing with the virus or RNA piece. Um, I, I, I've been having discussions with Sally Fallon of Weston A. Price. Uh, she, uh, maybe you guys are in this boat, maybe not. I, it doesn't matter that it's, it's a theory nonetheless, that the theory being that the virus doesn't exist, it's not contagious, uh, uh, and that the, uh, what we call it, the virus is actually um, kind of like where we have extra cholesterol in our body. It's kind of like the police in our body fighting off um, uh, toxic harm from 5G or other things. Whether it's true or not, um, it's not the point. The point is you can't claim that to be true, nor can we claim the virus necessarily to be true, but at least from in terms of, like I was saying, when we understand the property of something with time, um, I would argue that we understand viruses better than that theory right now. It's been more empirically tested. Um, and even just looking at the evidence, if that was the case, looking at Asian countries versus us right now, uh, it seems like they've barely been hit. 
and basically seem to have stopped the spread. Whereas for us, that seems to be the opposite. Now, whether that's, you can always look at the nuances, but the best is to look at anecdotes and having friends on the ground is, in my opinion, better than statistics, especially for something that's like a burgeoning field. Um, and in Asia, it seems like no one's really getting hit. Uh, and it seems like they've stopped the spread. Uh, so that has to put some pause into the virus is not contagious uh, theory. Um, but anyway, back to the, the things I, that I definitely agree with. Like, for example, I don't think all germs are out together. It's like, I mean, I, I, like most of our body is, at least the current theory seems to say that it's more pathogens, not pathogens, uh, more microbes than, than, you know, what is actually part of us, right? So, I, I definitely agree that, you know, there are, we should not try to kill all bacteria, right? Like, however, we should not preclude the possibility that some are pathogenic. And both of you touched on this. Uh, Chad said 1%, Natasha said lucky. Um, the point is, there are some pathogens, uh, kind of like wealth in the world, where they take over. And, and that 1% just got lucky. And, and honestly, uh, in terms of what happened back in the day, I don't think, again, I don't think humans are entitled. Probably what happened back in the day was some of our immune system was good enough, we fought it off. And some tribes just probably got destroyed completely and eliminated. The reason why I didn't kill all of the human population was we weren't globalized. Not every single person was connected. Peru wasn't connected with Egypt, right? So if all the Egyptians die, well, all the Peruvians are still alive. Uh, that, 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 it was the natural, uh, what Mother Nature gave to humans was the ability that not all humans are connected. If not all humans are connected, guess what? We have a natural killing mechanism to kill the virus. Does the immune system kill the virus? If that fails and it kills most of the humans, well, we still have all the other humans in the world. Uh, so there's a kind of like a pest control, if you will. Humans are in some sense pests too. Uh, unchecked, we can do bad things. So uh, a little bit stepping to what you were saying, Tasha, and then I'll circle back to what Chad was saying, you know, if not, if, if not now, when? Well, the thing is, you know, if uh, we may need to like check some of the human, uh, check some human like from mother nature as like a pest control. The virus was kind of like a pest. If you've guys seen the movie, Biggest Little Farm, it's very cute. Uh, it's, it just shows like how when one pest gets too big, you introduce another pest that kills the other, uh, makes that more controlled and then lives in a nice harmony after. Um, we are destroying climate change, if you believe in climate change. You know, uh, car pollu uh, air pollution has significantly dropped in major cities, China and LA. We're breathing in better air because possibly of this coronavirus, right? Like maybe mother nature is setting a check on us. Um, the, and, and yeah, it may, be the wake-up call, you know, to people to start considering like uh, more ancient wisdoms of treatment, right? Um, but the thing is, as uh, as um, we humans should not feel entitled and come up with theories that say, "Hey, we're we're going to be fine, and we can survive anything," because we can't. An injury can be harsh enough that even even though we're meant to survive injuries, we can't take all injuries. Even though we're meant to fight some viruses, it does not mean that we can fight all viruses, right? And, and this virus may not be that different from other viruses. It just could just be a result of chance. So like, I believe, and this is a theory, that many of these viruses are constantly all around us uh, and infecting. But the thing is, 
say it infects one person and one person stays home and fights it off, then that virus never made it to other people. Or say it infects one person and every person dies, again, it never made it to other people. It could have been the perfect virus. It could have been another coronavirus, SARS-CoV-3, 4, 5, whatever. But because it never had the chance to super spread, it never made it to other humans, right? And that's also a natural check on the virus. It's our pest control against the virus, right? Um, again, I'm under the assumption that this virus is contagious. Uh, it's an assumption. I'm going to hold to that assumption over the other one. I think this is the no hypothesis, and it is up to Sally and them to prove otherwise. Um, the empirical data seems to suggest that that should be the no hypothesis. Um, so the thing is, if this virus, uh, if humans aren't entitled, and this virus is a lucky event, and we have our natural pest control, uh, which is the immune system, but we also have our natural pest control, which is not all humans are right next to each other, then we should employ both of them because from the empirical data, it seems like, hey, if, we, if I'm away from you, you're not gonna get the virus. If you're living in China and I'm here, guess what? I'm not gonna be able to infect you there if, again, under the assumption this virus is contagious. Now, if we uh, only turn to conventional medicine, as Chai was alluding to, then you face like kind of like this slippery slope with the governor saying like, yo, you, I'm, I'm not sure if that's what the governor said, by the way, um, but like if he says like, oh, we're gonna stay home until a vaccine or drug is found, I don't, I don't agree with that because that itself has downsides. That could be literally a virus, and not in terms of uh, an organism, but in terms of the damage, the scale of damage you can do. If everyone becomes infertile or if some percent of the world gets some harm two years down the line and all get autism or something, then, then it's even worse, right? So like, we got to consider the downsides of how long something has been as well. So I, I don't believe we should use conventional medicine as treatment. Um, I do think, and I myself, skin in the game um and taking organ pills and stuff like that i think we should look at alternative forms to use our natural pest control but i do think we should also employ the other natural pest control we've been given which is not all humans are connected right next to each other um and to kind of limit that you know spread things like a mask or things like just staying physically distant we can eliminate this virus very quickly um as long as we can educate people on that and the thing is i do from from a like surveys and stuff what it seems like is most people are on board they just don't realize my sister for example didn't realize that she thought to, to, she wrote to me like a few weeks ago like do we really have to wait it out till a vaccine or drug i'm like no no we don't need to wait till a vaccine or drug this can be done way beforehand um i think that since most people are on board we just need to educate people on, on the spread but here's another like to back to natasha's thing a uh, golden, like uh, a silver lining, um, which is now that if this virus seems to impact mostly old and people with conditions, maybe it'll get people to go, huh, maybe I should work on that, right? So if not when, then if not now, then when? Well, it could be now, but after we put this virus in check, because if this virus spreads, I don't know what else it can do, right? It could become much worse. It could be like the second wave of the 1918 flu, which actually hurt people like us more than people, again, anecdotal, uh, nuanced statistics, whatever, but the point is the possibility exists. And there's a theory for it, whether the theory is true or not, the point that, that the point doesn't matter is we don't understand this virus well enough. If it is a virus, if it isn't a virus, whatever, we just don't understand what's happening right now. Um, and we do know, at least from looking at the data right now, that if you wear masks and stay away from each other, it seems like the from a, a large 
uh, from looking at Asia and other countries, it seems like this, you know, the virus is gone. It's nearly extinct. Taiwan hasn't reported a case in like three weeks now. I'm not sure if it was, what it was, um, but yeah. I am curious what the result, what data would show if everyone started eating organ meats right now. <laughs> I think that would be great. Yeah. Immune system, like immediately. I'm, I would be extremely curious to see what data would show. Um, unfortunately, that's, you know, the kind of experiment that's yeah. not going to be around on a global nope. scale. Right. But that's what I'm talking about. Like if, if that were the case, like, again, like, you know, philosophical, hypothetical situation here, um, if we, if everyone did get on board with kind of more ancestral living, uh, I wonder, and my intuitive sense tells me that it would be more effective than wearing masks and, you know, obsessively sanitizing hands and staying physically distant from people. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's, that's just a philosophical, you know, kind of a tangent we can entertain, but it's, it's not going to actually get tested. As, as, as just to entertain the thought real quick. I definitely think it may even be, uh, there's a possibility it could be more effective because not only are you, you know, maybe protecting yourself against this virus, but you're protecting yourself against Alzheimer's, against cancer and all that, all added up, right? 100%. Right. So the, my thought is we can do a little bit of both, which is what I've done personally. Um, like, and for my parents, I got them all the organ pills and stuff like that. Um, but I also told them to stay physically distant. They are over 70. Um, I told them to wear a mask and I ordered them groceries online because in my opinion, we have two forms of pest control, right? That we know fairly well with the test of time. We can't prove organ pills will work. We can't prove this virus is not contagious. Sorry, is contagious. Um, but we do know from decent test of time that viruses are contagious. And we do know from test of time that organ pills will probably, or like eating ancestral will probably help us out. So like, in my opinion, employ both. We have both weapons, employ both against the virus that's killed us sooner. Let's not have to go for vaccines or drugs. Like all the other policies, I think they're all either too far-fetched, right? And this, I have nothing against, you know, uh, getting all of us the organ pills. I just don't think it's going to happen, right? It's, it's why I, my, um, the article I'm writing doesn't talk at all about that because it's just not going to happen right now. What's the most bang for my buck? to like educate people and get things done. I also don't think what's going to happen is herd immunity where they're like, oh, let's get everyone back to work and get everyone infected. Guess what? Look at Sweden. No one's going back to work. You're not even, you're getting, Sweden has like the highest per capita death, basically, like, more, like the fifth, sixth highest and way higher than the U.S., but no one's going back to work or no one's going back to do anything. So it's like the worst of both worlds, right? So like the, if you want to herd immunity, you got to get the people to go, but no one's even going, right? So like, the first thing is you're not going to get, unfortunately, in the short term, you're not going to get people to do healthy things right away. You're not going to get the government to force people to either stay in or to force people to go out. Both of that's not going to happen. So realistically, what can you do? Well, most of the people already agree that you should stay physically distant. So if, if most people already agree on that, and we know that's a form of pest control, then what I'm advocating is, hey, get people to wear masks, stay physically distant, kill this virus, because I believe it's just a lucky virus. It, it got lucky and we can remove its luck, uh, and then eliminate any sort of assumptions that could hurt us in the long term. Just like a vaccine can hurt us, so can the mutations of the virus. And the virus, like a vaccine, is at scale. It's in fact, it's probably better distribution than a vaccine because vaccines, some people may not want to take it, but this virus, it literally, you can spread, <laughs> just like go out and spread, spread the vaccine, right? So like, uh, spread the virus. Um, so 
it, I think the downsides to a mutation virus, it's just as bad as downsides as a vaccine. It's, we should just be looking at like, hey, let's use our natural forms of ancient wisdom pest control, which is human tribes weren't all next to each other. Um, not like right now, we're all sitting right on these dense cities, like the Seattle, like what? It's, that doesn't make any sense. That's not ancient tribal at all, right? Um, stay tribal, stay with your close family and friends. You don't have to make new friends every day. And, uh, you know, cook with your close family and friends. Uh, go outside, go for a walk in the park, eat your organ pills. Um, but other people won't, it's fine. Uh, the point is, wear a mask, let's kill the virus first. And then using Natasha's uh, philosophical thought, let's now use this as an opportunity to, you know, bolster up this ancient wisdom, to try to get people to, you know, work on the immune system. But also, uh, the nice thing with this method is for the next pandemic, the next novel flu, the next whatever that's novel, we have a way to battle it effectively, which is what, if you look at Asian countries, again, they basically have no one dead except China. They basically have no one dead, almost no one infected. And why? Maybe it's because they had SARS 2003, mostly hit them. And they had the swine flu 2009, mostly hit them. So they're just like, I'm going to mask up. I'm going to stay physically distant. In Japan, since the 1960s, masks have been worn consistently because it's part, they feel it's part of the civic duty not to infect others. Like the, and if people are arguing like, oh, masks are dangerous. Well, you have millions of people wearing masks in the 1960s. That's a test of time right there. Um, so like, just if we all practice our civic duty, which I seems most people are on board, then that's a more, more likely thing that can happen. Um, unfortunately, then um, getting everyone to take a vaccine or getting everyone to do functional medicine right now, it's just, I'm on board with, you know, organ pills and stuff like that. It's just, it's hard to change people like that quickly. I can't, I haven't changed my parents or siblings in 10 years. So. Yeah, there's a lot of great, a lot of great points in there, Eric. Um, I'll try to touch on a bunch of things as well. Um, so I think one of the, one of the big things I was thinking through all those threads was uh, kind of the scope of this stuff in terms of like, what is, I was, I was fall back to kind of like, post-agriculture and pre-agriculture, which is kind of like the whole essence of like the paleo movement. I'm reading uh, this great book right now by Christopher Ryan called Civilized to Death. Um, and he's actually does this big long examination of, you know, pre-agriculture versus current civilization and the ups and downsides of everything and kind of goes through how, you know, kind of modern, modern civilization, the evolutionary mismatch between, you know, what we were how we were living in tribal situations versus modern life and the huge mismatch basically kind of disrupts everything, which is kind of the central tenet of, of uh, conferences like Paleo Effects right. is just exploring that mismatch and seeing what's going on with that. Ironically, Paleo Effects itself is a, is a modernization thing. Everyone around yeah. the world can, coming together at one point, it's just something that didn't happen before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Irony is not lost here. But <laughs> <still>. <laughs> yeah. So I still go. Um, yeah, it, it's enjoyable, but I, yeah, mostly the new foods and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the difference between like what was happening previously versus now, I think that actually applies to a lot of these pandemics and stuff too. Cause I always try to remember that like, uh, agriculture was roughly like, you know, depending on the stats, like seven to 10,000 years ago is where we moved from these tribal cultures to, um, modern times. And so I think that same rule applies like some of the stuff you're talking about, Eric, in terms of like, um, if are we if we're looking at kind of experiments and data in modern times and what's happened recently, even the last you know hundreds or even the last few thousand years, um, is it really speaking to kind of like innate human tendencies? Um, and the way 
personally, I think about these things, like what we touched on earlier was like, you know, essentially short versus long-term. And I think that's important to differentiate here because in the short term, it like, I totally agree with you that it's like, there are certain strategies that we're going to be able to execute on a global scale that would help with like, kind of like putting out the fire today. And then there's always this long-term view of like, okay, how are we letting that inform us? Um, my kind of like experience, um, as a, a coach a and quick, yeah, quick interruption, um, yeah. uh, for putting out the fire, the one thing I don't like with putting out fires is, and you guys will agree is, uh, a lot of them are band-aid fixes where they don't consider mm -hmm. the downside. Uh, this approach, at least the one I'm advocating, mm -hmm. I'm trying to advocate the approach where I have the fewest assumptions so that even this putting out the fire, it will actually put out the next fire, the next pandemic, et cetera. So like it's more, it is putting out the fire, but you, typically in the functional medicine world, that's overloaded with bad because mm -hmm. typically they, they're short-sighted and they don't consider the downsides in conventional medicine. They put out the fire in conventional medicine, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, without caring for the downside or the long-term effects and stuff like that. Yeah, and no, I think it's definitely important to balance both. Um, I, the pattern that I've seen personally in terms of like people uh, being accepting to change, basically, which is kind of like you know human psychology, like how do we incorporate new behaviors, new habits? Um, it's unfortunately, I think what happens a lot of the time is that it has a lot to do with like pain points. Like when people are afraid of something and it's a huge enough pain point, it's when they're it's like during that pain um, that they're going to go seek out a solution. And I think that's what like Natasha has been, you know, saying as well was like, if the time, the only real time I, I've seen people really change is when they're currently going through pain. And so then you have this kind of long-term philosophical question of like, you know, essentially these things become like teaching moments, things like pandemics, especially on a global level, because everybody has their attention focused on it. It's very hard to get everyone as a, on the species level on the earth with 8 billion people it's all focused on one thing at a time because <laughs> every other time it's like you know that's kind of how we are you know we're kind of on the fringe in this you know one sect if you will of people um and we all focus on things like health all the time but as soon as you know i have the the suspicion that as soon as this pandemic lifts everybody kind of goes back to business as usual where they're kind of doing their same unhealthy habits and all that sort of stuff um the thing I, so I basically, I totally agree with you. If you look at this as like kind of an, uh, an isolation of the problem of like, can we find the best, most efficient methods of like the uh, quality of the pandemic, kind of like the Asian countries have, I think that's actually super useful because then it's like, it's like the best kind of like uh, short-term approach to solve this one problem. The, the thing that alarms me is that I've, you know, I see this trend over these multiple years where like, I'm seeing this kind of longer, longer term narrative over decades where it's like each successive pandemic is serving in the current model of like the world media and governments and business. It's, it keeps serving to kind of like further entrench people in being, it, it's really like a, it's something kind of like a victim mentality basically. And there was a term, I was just reading a paper earlier today about uh, someone calling it global Stockholm syndrome. Um, and it's actually a paper by uh Kelly, Dr. Kelly Brogan, she's one of my favorite renegade psychiatrists who is like, you know, night in the wool, triple board certified med uh, giving psychiatrist that converted over to natural stuff, frankly, just because she realized the science wasn't there. It did, wasn't, didn't support all the drugs and it wasn't working. And now like, you know, her and other people, her other colleagues are actually kind of getting cures basically for uh, mental illnesses that were, again, previously thought incurable. 
but she was she was writing about this concept of like you know on a global level the fact that a lot of people have um, because of this disconnect between the tribal background and the modern lifestyle now a lot of us are not like able to fully step into adulthood and like let go of that kind of parental authority figure mindset and she was saying that like what we're experiencing now is something akin to like a global Stockholm syndrome, which is similar to like when people get abducted by terrorists and they start kind of attaching emotionally to the terrorists because they feel it's safer to kind of cling on, even though the person's basically, you know, abusing them or taking advantage of them or even threatening to kill them. Um, they start, you know, defending that process. And she was saying like, that's kind of what, what, and I totally agree with this is that I think that this is what's going on kind of over the decades here from, if you look back, say like, you know, kind of, American Western medicine back in probably like, you know, the thirties, fifties, sixties, that time range was just coming into power, so to speak. And, and pharmaceuticals were starting to gain traction and getting a lot more money. Um, ever since then, the pattern that I've seen through all my experiences over the last 20 years has been like that pattern just keeps getting worse. It's kind of like an abusive relationship that keeps getting a little bit more toxic each time. And I think that's what Natasha is saying is basically like if each one of these waves, we kind of on a global level are using this as, as more, you know, kind of fuel to the fire of like, Oh, well now of course we need, you know, a pharmaceutical solution. And like, you know, I think all of all three of us are totally in agreement that that's not our preferred preference. Um, but like, we've had a lot of other conversations with people that are, you know, they're, they're working on the, you know, the front lines, so to speak, which I, I kind of have an issue with that mindset of looking at medicine as a war. Anyways, it's completely against the kind of whole like holistic <laughs> of like we're battling these things and we have to kill them and it's all that kind of fight rather than being in harmony with it um but yeah that whole the whole I, I feel like there's like kind of some point at which like um like we kind of have to wake up <laughs> to the fact that as a as species we're waking up to the fact that you know, and Chris Ryan's book again with uh, Civilized to Death talks about this, that it's not really any specific, it's not even just like the pharmaceutical companies, not just one country or one government or anything. It's the whole bigger pattern of like civilization in general that we've gotten ourselves into. You know, we're, we're not connected with the earth anymore. We're not, we're not cultivating and developing these intergenerational communities from kids to, you know, grandparents and passing on wisdom. We're not, you know, getting just like, like you're saying right now, Eric, just getting out in the sunshine, getting out and breathing air, like the literal most basic things of human life. And then, you know, how far do we go down um, this road before we're really woken up? And, and I agree with Natasha that I think that when this first came out, we were both of us were like, oh, maybe this is the time. But I actually don't think that it is. My prediction is that this will continue for maybe another 10 years, another 20 years. There will be successively worse pandemics. And it will only be like when there's a massive thing, like either... Like, you know, there's, if you look at things like statistics for like autism is a great example. If you look at graphs for in, uh, increase in rates in autism, it used to be like one in like, you know, a thousand or something like that. And it, it goes straight up. It's interesting because if you overlay the graph of like pounds of uh, pesticides used, it perfectly and matches and, and vaccines too. But like it overlays where it's like, you know, it went up from like one in a thousand or 2000 to one in, you know, 500, 200. Now it's like one in like, I don't know what it is. It's crazy. Like one in five or something. And they're projecting it's going to be like one in two in another like 10 years or maybe even sooner. It's, it's insane how quickly it's rising. And that same trend occurs for other things like diabetes, obesity, heart disease, pretty much every chronic lifestyle disease. So my, my personal opinion is that like we're seeing like we're on this uptick of this curve of like essentially disease on earth and that which disease it is is not really the most particular point, whether it's the heart disease or diabetes or the viruses that kill us first as a species. It's kind of like that's where we're headed. And I, I don't think it's going to 
wipe us out. What I think is going to happen is these are going to keep going on this upswing until there's something that happens that knocks out like, you know, 25% of the earth's population, like something big. And then people are going to be like, holy shit, like this is like, this is actually the time where they're going to like break off of that kind of past like parental control relying on governments and other other people to come save them like companies to come in with the miracle drug or the miracle pill or whatever it is and be like wow like we actually have to take back our power and get back to our roots as a species like we're going to have to kind of like break off um, from this current trajectory but I don't think that this is going to be it I think this is kind of like one more maybe like some people a few more people will break off and be like you know kind of in our camp so to speak and be like okay well let's let's get back to basics and be more healthy. But most people kind of just hunker down and kind of like business as usual until they get hit so hard with the pain point And it's so scary. Um, the last thing I'll say on this for hand it back to you guys is just that I find it interesting, this concept, like you were saying, Eric, of the anecdotes as in like in our actual communities here, like in Seattle, like I don't know anybody that's gotten the virus um, personally, you know, talking to kind of hundreds of people. Are you guys going out works. at all? Uh, we we have... Good? Are you guys going out to shops and stuff and things? Um, I do. I go shopping very frequently. Um, I don't usually wear a mask unless it's required in the store. Um, so I'm actually out quite a bit, yes. Yeah, because I, I know at least um, my friend who's in Beijing, they've reopened uh, basically and completely. Uh, people are out um, less than before, but um, effectively no one's seeing relatives and stuff like that in hospitals and talking about it. Uh, whereas in New York City, any single person you talk to in New York City, uh, they probably have some person connected to them. I know Seattle uh, prepared earlier than New York City by like a week and that could have been the difference. Um, but uh, at least in New York versus like China, you, this, you can definitely talk to, talk to any friend of, uh, in New York City and you'll, they'll tell you, yeah, I have this friend who got infected and stuff like that. Uh, what about most of the rest of the United States outside of New York City? Yeah, they may not be as bad. So like, like my, my article talks not about like, you know, unless test and trace is not as good, then it basically depends on how test and trace is versus how, uh, how fast the virus is moving. So if like I can get a phone call and get myself tested that day, that's fine. Um, because we can track the virus and how it spreads. If the virus is moving very like uh, discreetly, then then test and trace isn't working. And no, no matter what, we can't follow it. At that point, that's, that's a different story. So you guys, um, I have a test and trace map that I was looking at earlier. You guys are like almost fully test and trace ready uh, versus like certain states like uh, New York is not test and trace ready at all. Um, so it really depends. Obviously China is, <laughs> uh, and obviously Taiwan is, they're getting zero cases a day. So they, you know, they have enough test and trace with tens of thousands of people. So they're, they're definitely ready uh, for a phone call. Um, so it, it, it depends on, I think, anecdotally for the area you're looking at. Anyway, continue what you're saying, because I have a lot of things to say. <laughs> Go ahead. Do you want to jump in, Natasha? Because I was talking. No, I, I want to hear what Eric has to say. Um, you finish. Yeah, I was going to see if there's anything else I was thinking about this. But um, I guess, it, I guess the, the main thing I was thinking was in terms of like, um, it sounds like what we're all kind of getting at is, is separating out maybe some of these different threads. So like, it seems like we're, you know, obviously we, we have a lot of overlap in terms of like our approaches, our personal approaches, what we think is going to do and be healthy. I think we're like kind of all on the same page with that. Um, all pretty much on the same page that like, it's a very slippery slope with governmental control and like having too much 
of that kind of micromanaging and very, you know, kind of questionable business practices and things that drive the media and all that. I think we're all on the same page with that, which a lot, not a lot of other people are, which is why I like to take the time on the show to kind of talk about that. Cause I think other people are not quite as, you know, maybe just haven't read as much stuff. I think that's a, honestly the biggest difference. A lot of time I think from a lot of my friends we all come from similar, relatively similar kind of educational backgrounds. And, but we have very different experiences like in our personal life or, you know, different books we read. If you've read, you know, one person's read 20,000 pages of, you know, scientific stuff in one subject, another person's read it in a different subject, you're going to have very different opinions. And I think that's what I've experienced a lot with different friends. Um, but I think starting to separate this stuff out is, it sounds like it might be very helpful in terms of separating out, like, what should we do in the short term? What should we do in the long term? And it really does, like, what I've come around to is, like, what can I do within my own small communities? And, like, you know, even something like this podcast you know, how, if, it, if it's going out to mostly kind of like my friends and family in my small network, you know, what are people, what are like actionable things people can do? What are ways that, and not just actionable, like as in what they can take or what they can do, but like, how can they think? I think that's a huge part of this. How can people change the way they view this? And that's kind of like my personal mission, I think usually is to try to empower people to see that there's different narratives. There's different ways to look at the world and your own body that like, you're not like, you know, like we're invincible. We can just do whatever we want, but that it's like you have more power than you think internally for the average person on the earth. I think the message being put out in like, you know, the global media channels is a very disempowering one. It's like, you have to wait for us to rescue you. You, you just kind of have to be cowering in fear, which is kind of the complete opposite of like, you know, our personal viewpoint. And, you know, the best way I've heard it put is kind of like, you know, once you know that there are multiple narratives, kind of like the matrix, the red pill and the blue pill, once you know you have a choice that there's this other ways, multiple other ways, not just one to look at it. I think, you know, personally, that became much more empowering for me. I was able to say like, okay, wow, I can actually choose. Do I want to take, you know, antibiotic or organ pill or, a, you know, my idea for this whole thing has always been from the beginning. What if you got the top, you know, kind of top 20 uh, functional doctors around and made like an IV cocktail that included not only vitamin C, but things like, you know, glutathione and, you know, different kinds of B vitamins, things like the Myers cocktails and stuff people get that are like IV therapy. Like I would love to see a study like that, even on a small scale, like, you know, a small sample size of like people that are severely sick in the hospital do like, you know, one approach, which is drugs and, you know, intubation and all this stuff, and then do that for the other approach. And like, you know, not, I'm not saying that I'd have the best one. Frankly, I know I probably don't, but I know that, you know, I've gone to, enough conferences and read enough books by a lot of people that like, there's a very, very good, very smart, like functional doctors out there that I'm sure they could come up with like a good prototype, test it out. That's kind of been my thought from the beginning, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that if we could run those experiments, that'll be interesting. Um, personally for me, I, I am against both, uh, single supplement type things and, uh, drugs. Um, in my opinion, I think both are human naivety, but I can't say they both want to, like, I, I don't know which will work, right? Like, I, I think both are new uh, in terms of mm -hmm. testing as a single supplement thing. Steroids, you know, it's testosterone, it's single supplement. Uh, we thought it was great. We got stronger. And then the long-term effects came. I think it's hard to beat nature without having a side effect. So unless you have some symptom array that's really, really bugging you, I wouldn't personally take single supplement stuff uh or or drugs um that's but that's my personal thing um before i address your things uh a non-sequitur quip um i'm wearing uh normally i'd be shirtless but i'm wearing this because it lets uh sun through 
but uh, without being inappropriate. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a non sequitur. No, actually, this one is more related to what you're saying. But again, not addressing your main points, but just a quick interruption one. Uh, on statistics, the things with correlation is actually uh, uh, correlation itself. Most people, the, the number, the metric is nonlinear in terms of information that you get, meaning if you look at something that's 50% correlation, then you look at something that's 60% correlation, you think like, oh, that's a big jump. But really, it's not a linear metric. So you actually don't really get most, much information until you see like 95, 99% like correlation. So like for a good, uh, good historic example of that is when people thought that ice cream had a perfect correlation with polio. Uh, well, I, I'll let you guys figure that part out. But uh, it, did, it did have a perfect correlation. Um, but anyway, with the, the thing with this, uh, I'll touch on each topic. I think I'll remember everyone if I don't catch me at the end. Uh, disease. So like you were saying, uh, you know, we are being hit by a lot of diseases now, pre-agriculture versus post-agriculture. It seems like there are this, this correlation to, you know, disease that's growing with, with us. I think one of the diseases... Uh, uh, is is uh, is modernization, which seems to have caused a lot of things that you said. Um, another form of modernization that I think is a possible root cause is globalization and uh, of people. So I think that as actually could be the root cause of virus spread. Um, like I said, if you had tribes of people, and you believe that the virus is contagious then you, you get rid of that tribe, it's fine. We're decentralized enough that we won't affect everyone else, right? Uh, now, is that something we're willing to sacrifice? I don't know. Um, a lot of people won't want to sacrifice you know, plane travel, right? So it's, it's, it's tougher to say uh, if we can solve all things. Now, again, with the virus thing, I think that uh, if the virus, the root cause of that disease is due to modernization, and perhaps we can address that with uh, uh, improving our system and stuff. We, another thing we can address is cutting off those things during every pandemic so that we can address the next pandemic. Um, to, to, like, uh, to the mask point, um, personally, I don't, when Laura and I walk to the park, there's almost no one on, we're kind of like in the slight suburbs. There's no one really in our path to the park. There's zero reason we, wear, we should wear a mask, but we still do. And the reason we're doing it is not, I don't believe it's I have Stockholm Syndrome. Um, I've made that decision to wear masks before when everyone was saying not to wear masks, including the WHO and the CDC. They were all saying don't wear a mask. Um, the reason I wear it is uh, the same reason Japanese people have been wearing it since like the 50s. It's the civic duty thing. Um, they, they don't wear it for themselves. They wear it so that you, they don't infect other people. So they actually went from like 30% compliance already, like that's, I think it was like 30% of the nation already wears masks. And to once SARS-CoV-2 started happening, 99%. Um, Lauren's friend lives in Japan, literally everyone's wearing masks. Uh, and I imagine once SARS-CoV-2 is over, they'll go back to like 30% or something, which is probably the people that are sick at the time, right? So people are wearing it mainly just as a civic duty. Like for me, it's more like, hey, it's kind of like, you know, when people do their uh, breast cancer stuff. I'm not a fan of mammograms, but like, uh, and I could talk on the statistics of that, why I think it's actually more harmful to get a mammogram. But like, the point is, people wear the pin out of solidarity, it's civic duty. So it's more like, hey, the reason I write this article isn't that it's gonna, you know, like I'm protecting myself right now. It's more the civic duty of saying, hey, try to get everyone to be educationally aware. So if we all do it, we all stand together, we kill the virus using 
you know, a tool to fight modernization. Uh, so that, that was my thought on that. Now, the final point, the mo most interesting one is, you know, like with going through these ways where it seems to be getting progressively worse, right? And you were saying you have friends that, you know, read uh, only on one thing here or one thing there. And I agree with you. I think one of the, I can't say for sure, but I think one thing that's helped me uh, look at things differently maybe is that I don't only look at health. Um, I'm very interested in finance uh, and many other things, uh, politics and stuff like that. So like you see this pattern, not only in health, this human behavior pattern, but you see it in finance too. You see it in politics, you see it in so many facets of life. And um, some of them like could even be like kind of, uh, it's just like kind of like people are more selfish, you don't care uh, for other people or they're put in a situation where the incentives are like skewed. So like trying to change the system from, uh, from just like education uh, will help a little bit, but like a lot of it is we need to change the incentive system of like corporations because like, um, as you know that like, uh, for example, like a lot of the food uh, like nachos and stuff they're like maize like scientifically engineered to like make you want it right um, and, and then even uh, Monsanto is like has their own propaganda to show you that hey our, the, there's no there's no evidence that our thing is dangerous but absence of evidence is not evidence of absence right that's that's a, a common fault of people they always say oh there's no evidence well that doesn't mean that that, that means your thing is safe right um, so there's gonna be, you're gonna be faced these things on all sides. And what we really need to do is change incentive structure. And, and that's, like you said, it's like a longer term trend. Like at some point, you know, people start seeing things that are happening and they're like, shit, um, autoimmune diseases, like a, a, large, a large narrative, which I don't know if it's true and, my, and who knows if it is or not, on the functional medicine crowd, paleo crowd, they're like, oh, leaky gut. Well, it's you, your body starts having reactions to it with its own antibodies. And then once your gut breaks, it moves to whatever part of your body and attacks that because it's your body reacted to in the first place, whatever, like this narrative, whether it's true or not. The point is people are using autoimmune as fuel to fight like as educational awareness. So eventually maybe in 25 years or 20 years or whatever, you'll have enough fuel to fight as educational awareness. Uh, you may just have to wait. Like it's test of time. Literally time is going to be the best thing. Like with politics and corporations doing bad things, well, eventually you get revolutions, right? Um, I'm not sure if you guys ever seen that uh, thing with the four. It's like uh, good times creates weak men. Weak men create bad times. Bad times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Or we're just, we're just, we're just going to iterate through that. So like, you know, right now we're maybe creating weak men. Eventually it's going to be, we're going to have bad times, maybe climate change. Unfortunately, that might be more existential of a risk. Um, but like, you're going to have bad times and you can use that as fire and then people will rebel or people will use autoimmune narratives or whatever, like, and then you'll have that. Is it going to happen right now? Probably not. Like it's, unfortunately, it's probably not going to happen right now. Um, but may maybe sometime in the future, it'll, it'll, oh, there, there goes the umbrella again. Gosh, a shit ton of sun, Jesus Christ. Um, but uh, yeah, so my, my main thought is, I don't know when it's going to happen. I do think the incentive structures need to change. In terms of government, I, like, it should be probably, in my opinion, it should be built to 
basically enforce externality costs that other people are imposing on others. So like that, that cannot be controlled from bottom up. So like um, mask wearing, we can control bottom up. We could get educational awareness, kind of like Japan, and get people to wear masks as a civic duty. But something like preventing planes from flying to other places, that's something that uh, we'll need a government for, right? That, that's a, uh, in terms of this coronavirus, that's a externally cause that we can't really control too well. Police, that will be something we will need the government to do because again, that's, that's an externally cost. You shouldn't be allowed to kill someone else. That's a free ride for you if you are able to. Um, and, and then basically, eventually we'll create these bottom-up policies that will come through from people like you and me and we'll use those narratives and some of them might bubble into things that stop corporations from doing certain things, et cetera. Um, but yeah, those things take time. This is why like, I, my, my thought is like, if we were to come up with some policies right now, we need to look at ones that require mostly bottom up that can get people to do what they want. Oh, there's one last thing I want to touch on, which is Facebook itself is very polarizing um, because of its like feature. And you guys know what happened with Cambridge Analytica. So like, I, I'm assuming you guys do. So like yeah. the thing is, you your crowd that you may be seeing could be on on the, at least on Facebook may not be the typical crowd that uh, you that's actually on the street. Um, Very aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, um, uh, the media too, in terms of what a lot of people think. Um, in my opinion, the media has actually more recently it's changed, but has been since the very beginning very pro herd immunity pro no mask pro uh don't worry about it and anyone that is sick stay at home and wash your hands that part they have said stay at home wash your hands if you're sick but everything else they've been pro if i've been following this since january 15th uh, i got my first mask on january 20th um, again as a civic duty not necessarily because i think i'll get sick uh, i got it from my parents though because i thought they might get it i don't want they have over 70 so i don't want to risk that again downside i don't know if it's going to hurt them but i got them organ pills and i got the mask um but uh, from the very beginning the who was like if you if you literally watch all the stuff that people say instead of read articles actually watch what they've said my friend and i would literally be chatting like what the fuck is this guy saying so like literally he's uh Tedros has been saying, like, don't wear a mask since the very beginning. He said, it's not a concern. You do not need to close your borders right now. The one thing Trump did that I liked was he was like, all right, we're going to close to China, Wuhan. Um, and some other countries started not listening to who and doing their own thing. CDC has been very, this virus is low risk. It's not going to affect more than 30 people for the longest time. Uh, when I was watching, I was just like, are you serious? Like, look at what happened in China, right? Like, I can see tens of thousands of deaths in america if we don't listen and they're like we haven't had any deaths yet in america don't worry like if i, I from i've been following from the very beginning the who and cdc and all that and news outlets and listening to actual televised podcasts of, uh, uh sorry televised uh streams instead of just reading articles it's very clear that there's been massive corporate lobbying to put down the rhetoric that this is any sort of danger at all. Don't wear a mask. Continue going out. Even Disney World got an exemption to try to keep themselves open for one more weekend. Um, like every single corporation wants to open, period. Like there's so much lobbying dollars. There's way more money being poured to try to keep this open, trying to say this is nothing. And now finally, bottom up, which is what I think is the only way to solve these problems, like the health problem that you guys are, are, want to solve, 
people are changing the narrative to be like, holy shit, I'm having friends in New York City telling me that they're all like, like I have few friends have died, right? Like, like, cause I'm from New York. So like, I know how bad this problem is. I'm, my relatives are from China. So I know how bad it is. And I was in China, right? So like, you gotta, uh, I think from, from the media and from Facebook, a lot of the stuff that you receive are going to be distorted. This is how the Russians control us with Cambridge Analytica, right? So like, we need to be aware that, 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 that is there because we may think that everyone is against us, but it's possible that everyone may be with you right now or, or, or the narrative has flipped or something like that. But like, in terms of corporate lobbying right now, yes, there are a lot of corporate lobbying for some of the drugs and vaccines right now from the drug vaccines companies. But what you may not know is the hydrochloroquine or whatever has extremely long uh, history of uh, uh, evidence, sorry, absence of, ev uh, absence of harm. Um, that doesn't mean there won't be, but it has, it has been used for a long time. And instead of testing that, they like shot it down right away. And that one could have been tested alongside, but they shot it down saying like a lot of corporate dollars was probably put there because it's so cheap to get it off exactly. the counter. Exactly. Yeah. That's so, exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the thing, right? Like that's a drug, but it's a drug that has been used for a long time across many people uh, with seeming not many side effects. So it is, I'm not saying it's safe. I'm not going to personally take it, but I'm saying that should be tested alongside the cocktail vitamin C or whatever, right? Like why did they shut that down? Well, the lobbying dollars, just like the lobbying dollars are wanting to open. Um, and then people argue Bill Gates thing. And like, there's all these like intents and stuff. I'm just saying, we just got to look at the downside and ignore a lot of this because I think it would drive people maybe not to general Stockholm syndrome, but just insanity, because there's just too many narratives. Um, so the one I've stuck to since the beginning is, just look at this from downside, right? Like downside and also fellow man, like the golden rule, right? Um, I, or this, this, this thing called the silver rule, but basically do, like, do for others what you expect them to do for you, and also don't do to others what you don't expect them to do to you. So wear the mask, uh, you know, don't, and physically isolate if you can, if the test and trace is limited. If you're in Taiwan, it's fine. You don't need to do that. You can go out because they've killed it. Uh, but like when, when, when maybe Washington, it seems it's pretty good now. Oregon's a little better. Uh, Utah's pretty good too. But certain states, New York, you know, don't go out right now because wait till test and trace is a little better. Um, so I think a lot of those just predicate on downside and uh, the golden rule. And that's, that's basically all I've been predicating my thing on. Ignoring most of the data, because I know a lot of data is going to be noise for at least a few years. We're not going to know actual signal from noise. So if you guys know um, uh, the law of large numbers, uh, if you, it only takes around like 30 observations to capture what the true mean is uh, in a statistical scenario. But in, in what's called a normal distribution, meaning like height, for example. You only need like 30 people to figure out the average height of man. But for any sort of probability distribution that's non-Gaussian, meaning not normal, like wealth distribution, it takes, uh, for like the 80-20 principle, Pareto, it takes 10 to the 14th. So I don't know if you know how big that number is, but it's wildly, insanely big to get the average. Um, and if you look at it, if you look at, uh, uh, wealth distribution isn't Pareto, but like how many people would it take to get the average wealth of a country? If you only look at like most of middle America or some area, you won't ever get to the Bill Gates 
that one Bill Gates will have more wealth than all of these people, like millions of people, right? So it's going to take you like millions of billions of observations before you get even close to the actual number. And that's going to be the same here. This is not a Gaussian event. This is a, you know, a fat tail event. And if with any sort of fat tail event, you cannot look at the statistics until many, many, many observations later. So this is why I have ignored it completely, unless the statistics is something like crazy, like, for example, the excess deaths in New York. That's, that's normally distributed uh, because you're not going to have some crazy event unless it's like 9-11. Uh, well, guess what? If you look at excess deaths, forget the stupid nuance that people have with like, oh, well, maybe this was not coronavirus. This hospital was incentivized to mark the death as coronavirus because those, are, those arguments are stupid. I could just say like someone may have died at home with it and they didn't mark it as coronavirus, right? The, the arguments are stupid. The better argument to look at is what's excess deaths? How many extra deaths have happened since this coronavirus has started? Well, it's more than what happened during the World Trade Center on that day. Or two, more, way more people died on that day. So if you look at one of the graphs on my article, it's just like World Trade Center, boom, coronavirus, way more. This is just excess deaths. It could be anything. That's from all causes, right? But it spiked way higher than World Trade Center. That is a, in excess stuff is a Gaussian distributed thing. So you don't need many observations to tell that, holy shit, this is a high impact thing, right? So you gotta know, when people compare things, you gotta know, is it Gaussian distributed or is it fat tail distributed? Like for example, um, Paleo FX, uh, I had a, a discussion with them on this. I publicly posted it. Um, too much applause for probably because of uh, my echo chamber maybe. Um, but basically, they were comparing to car accidents. Now, bear in mind, uh, coronavirus didn't have many deaths yet in the U.S. at that point. So at that point in time, they were actually correct that coronavirus had less deaths per day uh, than car accidents. Now it's way more, like far exceeds car accidents per day. But the point was, even at that point in time when I was arguing with them, I said, you cannot look at car accidents because one car accident doesn't cause a million other car accidents. A car, the number of car accidents a year is Gaussian. It's normally distributed. You don't need many observations. You only need like five, six years, and you, you're fairly confident that this number of car accidents you're going to get a year. You cannot use five or six like, uh, years to tell you like, that this year is not going to have this many deaths from coronavirus. It's, it's not Gaussian. So they, they'll, you can't compare statistics of two things with different distributions. This is so, so this is like a statistical fallacy that they don't understand. They're too naive to understand. Like you cannot compare car accidents with that, right? Or, nor can you compare, you know, seasonal flu has the same, um, perhaps has the same, uh, it's not Gaussian. Um, we know it better. It's been around for much longer, right? We, we kind of know, now it's not, if there's a novel flu, like the H1N1, then it's novel, and then it did cause way more deaths. But like, if it's not novel, then we know it better. It's been a lot of observations. We kind of understand the properties a little more. So, so that that was that would be my last point on the statistical fallacies that one can have. Yeah, no, I totally agree with a lot of what you're saying. You're making a lot of really good points um, that I really appreciate with um, the statistics, and that's definitely an area where Natasha and I, you know, we have a lot of experience in other areas like psychology and chemistry. But statistics, you know, that's really uh, cool to hear your your side on that because that that does make a lot of sense. Um, I totally agree with the. Uh, your point about changing the incentive systems. I've had, you know, had an interesting talk with a friend, uh, Mark here, shout out to him in Seattle, um, about the same thing uh, about a year ago, which, which we're having a similar conversation about this, about like kind of philosophy of capitalism and, and different world uh, markets and things. And I totally agree that, you know, this, this relates exactly to what I was saying about that kind of whole civilization narrative of pre, pre and post agriculture is that um, 
it really has this, the shift to agriculture and away from tribes. It really did break that. It's like 150 is the stat that I've heard the most about, you know, where people can keep track of other people and really uh, reciprocal Dunbar, altruism. Dunbar number? Dunbar it, number? Uh, probably. Yeah. I don't remember the exact name, but that's probably it. Um, people, humans lose the ability to keep track of, you know, reciprocal altruism and, and who did what for who. And, you know, is everything basically balanced and fair, like in true egalitarian society where everybody's contributing resources equally. Um, that's, that's where we kind of our, our, our baseline number as a species. And then when we go to the scale of billions, we really lose track of, you know, uh, accountability and like a lot of that civic duty, like what you're saying, Eric, I totally agree. I think that's why like, you know, governments, countries, religions, they all serve as these kind of external structures to organize people around, you know, what used to be a natural thing. Um, and I think I I totally agree that like both that because that's broken down, um, because of the scale that humanity is at now, it is a struggle to get everybody kind of on the same page because inevitably I think what happens in situations of stress is that, um, we, we've basically trained people to be very, you know, more so individualistic or at least, you know, even culturally individualistic as in like this country versus that we're so steeped in that now for the last 10,000 years in civilization that when we need to pull together as a species, that's really hard to get anybody to agree (laughs) because I think kind of the, you know, the, the, the feeling that I felt too, like with my own kind of feelings on this and, you know, feeling frustrations or anger over, you know, not just this last year, but, you know, like I said, our last 20 years realizing, oh, Hey, everybody's not actually out to have my back. <laughs> like realizing that like a lot of advice or a lot of things that I read or, or things that I followed for sometimes like decades were actually really harmful to me. And I would get really angry. It's like, Hey, what, you know, what the heck basically why, you know, maybe I shouldn't believe every, you know, not just everything, but a lot of things that are being told to me um, so, as, under the as a, umbrella of education. But as a quick know. interlude, um, it's, it's interesting how, like you were saying, the Dunbar number with 150, like people, you can treat society as kind of fractally layered. So at the very bottom, people have your back. Your friends have your back, right? Like mm-hmm. they're not going to screw you over because they know if they screw you over, what can happen back. The farther and farther you get away from that, the farther, the less and less they'll have your back, right? So it's society, it's weird, but any sort of policy that people come up with should think of these layers uh, as in the, the one, the policy that you may have for a community, a village, may not be the same that you have for the world. Um, so like you, this is why kind of what I was saying with bottom up, you, to avoid the slippery slope of starting at the world level and going down, you should start the ground. It's okay to be authoritarian and lock down your ch- children. It's not okay to be authoritarian and lock down the world because it's a slippery slope, right? So like it depends on the layer that you're on. Yeah, totally. No, that's a great point. And I think honestly, that's been like, uh, that mismatch, I think is like what I've seen, like for us in our, in our little community here in Seattle, but even when we keep going up to like the city, state level, country, world levels, it is hard to have, you know, trying to have these policies and trying to, it's like trying to swim as a school of fish. Um, it gets to be a lot more complicated. Uh, but the point that yeah, I was getting to with that was about changing the incentive, uh, incentive system for corporations and on like a world level. I think that's a huge, huge thing. And I think that that kind of is, you know, that's the, one of my big takeaways um, from, from that book, Civilized to Death, again, is that, you know, there, if we don't change our kind of holistic approach as a species to how we're going to interact with each other on the earth, um, a lot of these things, it's kind of like same thing, different day, basically. Like it's, it's the same kind of story. It, it's interesting, like 
the things you're saying, Eric, about, you know, different aspects of this. And, you know, basically it's like you, if at any given minute, minute, if, if all corporations on earth are incentivized through capitalism to basically make the most profit, they're like, they're what they're going to put out with all their resources and all their marketing budget and, and everything have all these people pushing just whatever is making them money. And that's, you know, a lot of the times can be completely antithetical to what's healthy for people or good for people on really any level from health or psychology or the environment. It, it, there's no accounting for any of that. Um, and our friend Mark's idea with this was like, you know, what if you split things apart into, um, you know, a portion of it is profit, a portion of it is say like environmental sustainability, a portion of it is, you know, health and impact. And part of it is like, you know, community impacts. And if you, if we had it segmented where we're incentivizing people through dollars, um, through currency basically to do the right thing like that kind of do unto others as you would to yourself, then it would make a lot of sense. And even on a micro level, because if we had things like right now, like in the U S we just had that kind of tax incentive thing where everybody gets, you know, 1200 bucks or whatever, a stimulus package, but it's like, why stop there? Why not have it be things like, you know, Hey, if we're all agreeing that we're going to do our civic duty, that like that comes with some kind of like, you know, bonus basically, like we're essentially paying people or incentivizing corporations to do, um, things that are about more than just money. Because I think what really happens is like, you know, there's a whole bunch of lip service and marketing and words that are given. Like everybody's just talking all the time about like, oh, we're a good corporation. We do this. We help everybody out. But when it comes down to dollars, it's like it doesn't usually line up. And it can't really line up if our system is so polarized as in like we're only incentivizing for profit. And that's the end of the day. Like I think it's it's kind of like an artifact of society. It's, it's something that is, is basically toxic. It doesn't really help us come together when we need it. And I think this is actually a pretty good example of that. I want to rein you guys in because this conversation could go on for a long time and we can go <laughs> off on all sorts of tangents. So um, I want to circle back to our original topic of conversation and kind of to give everybody a chance to give their closing thoughts and uh, wrap up this podcast because we're nearing um, two hours. That's good. So <laughs> maybe we'll chat about what you said then next time, Chad. <laughs> yeah, that could definitely be another um, podcast on that topic alone uh, for sure. So, um, but I just kind of wanted to give, I guess, my summary of what we've talked about and my closing thoughts and Honestly, like to me, um, I really appreciate this conversation with you, Eric, because it, it did help me to understand your approach and the reason why, like what you're saying is, you know, kind of bottom up approach where we consider it a civic duty and um, approach this whole virus from um, the understanding that we don't actually really know, we don't really understand, we're making assumptions, and that everything is an assumption. But you, you know, you, you give certain um, weighting to different assumptions based on the test of time. Um, and uh, honestly, to me, it does I'm, I'm left with the sense of kind of resignation at the end of this podcast, to be honest, um, just because you know, I was, I was, like I said, kind of hopeful at the beginning of this pandemic that this could be the wake-up call that people needed, and it's looking like it's not so. And so I guess, like, for now, really all we can do is wear masks and um, distance from other people uh, to, you know, protect others, starting with our own tribe and then kind of, you know, blooming out from there um, in the way that you are talking about, Eric. And, uh, yeah, I just... I don't know. I guess I'm a little bit sad about that, that we I mean, can't enact global change just yet. <laughs> I'll give you an analogy that you may enjoy. Uh, 
I'm not sure if you guys are Trump lovers or not Trump lovers, but um, one thing I've, like Chad, you were saying, understanding other fields outside of health, uh, I have greatly hated the moderate Democrats for a long time, Obama, Clinton, all of them. They're all complicit in the same terribleness. Uh, and I could go on about that in a different podcast. I was hoping, kind of like you were saying, Natasha, that the coronavirus, i.e. Trump, would wake people up. But, you know, it doesn't seem that in, that would be the case. But, you know, eventually you'll get enough wake-up calls that you get rebellion, you get voices heard, and, and then you'll start seeing some change, actual change, not Obama change. So, yeah, correct. And, we, you know, we kind of all touched on that, that it's going to take, you know, several more probably events of whatever nature that hit on the on human pain points in order for change to really take root. So. Yeah, I totally agree. Give your closing thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, I was pretty good on my closing thoughts. Is there anything else you'd like to say, Eric? Um, yeah, I mean, I just I had my article. If you guys feel like sharing, that's up to you guys. Um, yes. I'm, it's been two weeks. I've had like probably so many people of different opinions. I mostly try to get people of different opinions than me, except people that are crazies, um, and try to get them to review it. And I've actually convinced a few people with that have been herd immunity, et cetera, to come to my side. Um, they said, I really don't have a good argument against you. And I'm like, that's because I'm not trying to argue with data. I'm just trying to argue with, you know, grandma wisdom. Your grandma would agree with me. And if your grandma would agree with me, then that's all you need. So um, it's, it's had two weeks of editing. I'll probably share it soon. Over 50 reviewers, maybe like 5,000 comments by now. I, I don't even know. It's, it's been a work in progress for the last two weeks. So if you guys feel like sharing, that's up to you. If you guys feel like reading, take a look. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically my closing point. Eric, do you want to share um, the draft of your article or do you want us to share the link to the finished one in the show notes? I finished one just because there'll be way too many comments. If you, I'm, not, I'm not sure how many you view accounts it. you guys got, but I'll send it to you guys very soon. Yeah, Sounds we'll great. definitely... We'll, we'll definitely. That. Yeah, post that up in the, the show notes here and I'll link, you know, some of the other things we're, we're talking about here, Eric, if you want to shoot us over any links of things you touched on. Um, yeah, I've, I appreciate you doing the hard work and, and putting that all together. I know how long I've written a couple articles myself that uh, one on the flu last year vaccine that was, you know, it takes a while to do all this research. And I don't think people always realize when they're reading articles, how long it takes to put it all together and craft a story around it. So oh, yeah, yeah, it's oh, a, yeah. uh, it's a lot of work. So we'll definitely put that in there. Um, and I'm glad we were able to have this conversation today. Cause like I said, uh, over email, like I'd been thinking about writing an article to share a lot of these thoughts too, but you know, just for the time investment <laughs> to do it myself, I'm glad I was able to kind of have this conversation and really share with a lot of people. Cause you know, like we're saying, like whether, you know, whatever our personal thoughts, you know, how much we filter out on the global level or not, you know, they do, you know, people in our small networks and our small tribes, you know, I, I take that as a responsibility kind of to share with, you know, friends, family, and other people in, in our, our local networks of a few hundred people to be able to hear conversations like this and to be able to, to think about it from different sides. And I think, you know, the goal uh, today, I think we, we got to it is, is just being able to share things um, to get out of the echo chambers, you know, get out of the yep. echo chambers of our personal Facebook feeds or whatever into yeah. our media channels into like, you know, people thinking about things critically that really care and want to do, do good in the world for, you know, micro macro levels. Um, sorry, I just had one more thought uh, as I was thinking about uh, my, what I said, my closing thoughts, and uh, I may have come off um, in a way that I didn't intend to say that it's not that I don't care about my tribe and about my community. Uh, 
it's that I was hoping to spread my love and care in different ways with, you know, things like education and like what we were talking about earlier with, you know, changing the diet, um, eating organ meats and things like that versus just simply wearing a mask and washing hands and staying away from the people that I love. That was my point. It's not, my point is not that I don't care and I want to infect my tribe or anything like that. It's the complete opposite of that. I was just hoping to do it through different means. Right, right. I, I mean, I think we all share the same frustrations. I think everyone also agrees with the same goals. We all want to get everyone healthy. No, few people want others to suffer. Um, I think, I think the thing is, the reality is, unfortunately, some things people won't do right away. Some things people might do sooner. Um, and that's, that's on the unfortunate reality I've come to accept with my, you know, my parents and siblings, you know, like changing health is extremely, extremely tough. May need a, 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 a psychedelic trip. <laughs> that's another good podcast episode but yeah um, i have a few good ones on that <laughs> yeah. um, right on. i think acceptance yeah that's a big one a lot of personal growth stuff that we you know we like to read into multiple areas as well and really kind of the the meditation mantra thing i've listened to the most the last couple of months has been around patience and acceptance um yeah. and i think that that and in all things life including you know business and finance and, and personal growth that patience and acceptance i think has been some of the most you know valuable wisdom that i've i've gotten off of different authors and things that i've read um to just kind of accept where things are at to just like take a moment and say hey you know this is where it's at of all these great ideas for the future without judgments but yeah without yeah. judging ourselves like this right conversation yes. yeah exactly <laughs> so well, thank you, Eric, again for uh, being thanks our for guest here. Me. Yeah, for sharing your thoughts, and we'll definitely share your article. Thank yeah, you. thanks, Eric, for coming on, and uh, we'll maybe have another one of these sometime. We'll have another interesting topic to do. So, yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm sure we'll have good topics. All right. All right. Until then, take care. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.